Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning, let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. So instead of asking us where the YouTube is located, where the Patreon is located, where the merchandise is located, you can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, in addition to the existing Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes, we're also giving people invites to the new voice social media networking club, Clubhouse. So right now it's closed off, it's in beta testing, you have to be an iPhone member, but if you join Patreon and through Patreon join the Discord, you will be able to get uh, Clubhouse invites. And the reason why we want people to get those Clubhouse invites is because we're doing a lot of stuff with the creators and the podcast fans, and you need to get invited to take part of that, including a new weekly creator and fans show that we've started over there where you get to interact with us and with each other so definitely become a patron for five dollars a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks and without further ado here is the episode take care champagne sharks how's it going um yeah so it's trevor and i have a whole podcast as a guest it's not a usual thing like not someone from a podcast i actually have the podcast as as a guest so we have uh the relentless uh picnic i'll let you guys introduce yourself i guess just say uh who you are what you think we should know about you what makes you qualified to speak on whatever it is you think you're qualified to speak on etc uh all right i'll start because my name's Adam, and alphabetically, that gives me the advantage. Uh, there's nothing really that makes me particularly qualified to speak about anything, uh, except that I sort of try really hard to be earnest and ask questions. And I have two partners in my podcast that are pretty smart. So we just sort of work through problems. Um, but yeah, I'm not like an expert in anything. I'm just a goofball who's sincere. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. My name's Eric, and I too am woefully unqualified. Uh, I guess what qualifies me is uh, that I have the proper stance against the um, hegemony of expertise in America. Uh, so if you're against expertise, it's really easy to be um, qualified. Yeah, I'm this also is probably not what Trevor wanted from us, but <laughs> here we are doing it. It's all good. <laughs> I'm Nick. I'm also against qualifications. I guess the thing I think about me doing or us doing is like with the right people, a conversation has an intelligence that is often much greater than even the sum of the people participating in it. And you can follow that intelligence to something you could never get to on your own. And as a bonus, you didn't really do it yourself. So there's nothing egotistical about it. Yeah. We all really believe in conversation as much as yeah, I can. And yeah, I mean, anyone who's listened to the show is, uh, knows we've gone to stranger digressions than that. So you <laughs> good. It's well, it, it's fine. Talking. It's fine. Uh, but also tell tell us about the podcast because uh, I've uh, your podcast was sent to me because I was struggling with an essay and I really enjoyed the format of the podcast, like the care you guys t took into. Um, not just the content of the podcast, but you gave it a very interesting uh, form that I thought enhanced the material. And I wanted to have you discuss like what your podcast is about in general, how you guys came to create the podcast together, like what your guys' relationship to each other is. And if you could describe like how and why you make the podcast the way you do. 
yeah, I don't know let, what, let me let me do all the boring stuff first and then and then Adam and Nick will will, will get really florid and and expository with it um we all uh knew each other in college and we started recording a, a podcast mostly uh to, to cope with what seemed like the end of the world and uh end of 2016 beginning of 2017 uh, and then we start as we started having more ornate conversations we realized that we could make podcasts that aren't necessarily pegged to uh the decline of the American Empire although they, it still managed to be but we created you know sort of like feature length episodes on on themes trying to interweave different threads in an interesting or hopefully interesting way and uh and and one of those threads was about George Tro's book that um that we recorded in 2017 of late we are recording a, a series called Cabin that is being released about solitude isolation Thoreau and the Unabomber uh, which is still in process right now boring part over <laughs> okay so now it's our chance to get florid I, I guess I would just say that like it felt to us like a lot of podcasts, just a lot of media in general in like the landscape was trying to make everything simpler, easier to digest. Like everything was supposed to be sort of explained away into these very comfortable morsels where like the NPR voice would just be like, and here's the explanation of why like rent control doesn't work. And we wanted to go the other way. We wanted to make like big, thick, complicated pieces of audio that like you could listen to multiple times. So instead of just like making an episode about the problems with television, we would incorporate like weird ads and weird, a really weird 1980s essay about television and just try to make it like, I don't know, as dense as possible because it seems like so much media treats its audience with a kind of like disrespect, a sort of cunning, here's what's easy. And we were trying to go the other way. Yeah, I mean, that vibes to me. Like, I guess the thing that I think about other than Trump being elected, which was like the like seed crystal of the podcast, it's like a feeling I've had as long as I've been alive of like, the world is way more complicated than people are telling you it is. And the fact that people are busy and newsreaders want to like flatter people's haste, that they try to compact everything into these little pellets of information that seem to make sense, and how that creates a world that is significantly smaller than the one your body actually lives in. And so to do something to bring back complexity and even like lostness uh, with people that I trusted felt really, really like bodily necessary because the alternative was like going insane or not caring about anything anymore. I'm very interested about the cabin thing because um, it's so interesting you say that because I just got the Unabomber manifesto. I didn't actually oh, know yeah? you guys were doing a series on that. I got the Unabomber manifesto because um, a bunch of people asked me, have you read the Unabomber manifesto? And I was like, uh, no, why? And they said, <laughs> oh, because... A lot of the stuff you talk about is in the Unabomber Manifesto. And I was like, seriously? And then, yeah, it's always a great thing to hear. And then, um, and they were right. Like, they sent me, like, excerpts. <laughs> like, they did, like, screen caps and stuff. And I was like, oh, this actually <laughs> sounds... Yeah, but it, it, is, it is not... It is a crazy thing to hear if you don't... Uh, if you never actually looked at his manifesto. But the manifesto is, like... Uh, it feels weird to say out loud, but it makes it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I haven't read the whole thing, but the parts they sent me um, made a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, um, we are yeah, like I said, we're struggling with this live. Uh, so if you if you want to hear us sort of grapple episode over episode with the Unabomber Manifesto, we're we're still in the process of doing it over at the Relentless Picnic podcast. But uh, definitely, there are some slam dunk points that he makes that are general enough to be, I think, some things that we can easily get on get 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 sort of on board with. I, I think, uh, I, I don't know the, how rigorous a document it is about the titular subject 
subject matter about uh, uh, you know about industrial society in in a kind of rigorous philosophical or historical approach but the spirit of the thing i think it is like a built-in challenge with that document because if you're not in line with the spirit of the thing it's almost more troubling uh, for you than if you are in line with the spirit of the thing. It's kind of like a funny journey because you start out being like, well, I'm not going to agree with the Unabomber. And then you're so sort of excited to have someone actually like critique technology and the way our society works that you get like sort of excited. You're like, there is something deeply wrong with our society. He's afraid of the right things, even if he is like this murderer or whatever. And then you end up disappointed that he isn't even like a better social critic than he ends up being. So you go from like, I don't want to agree with this guy to like, Unabomber, why didn't you do an even better job of critiquing all this stuff? <laughs> yeah, yeah, straight, yeah. Like, I, wish I wish you wrote more instead of just bombing, you know? <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, like you could have I mean, done it even better. I mean, the amount of work it would have taken to knock the manifesto into like publishable shape is probably the amount of work it takes to make all those bombs. <laughs> yeah, maybe even less actually. But it, you know, as part of his whole series of complexes that he's working through, one of them definitely is intellectual insecurity. And there are parts later on in the manifesto where he talks about not even really having the cojones to try and get this thing published himself. Uh, he he, like a lot of um, like a lot of smart, angry men in the world, he was sort of beaten down by academia before he fled to the woods uh and no doubt that influenced uh his rigor decisions didn't he have some weird experiments done on him too at yeah some he point? definitely did he, he ran into yeah, yeah. a really really powerful harvard psychologist who kind of drafted him into studies about self-esteem basically consented to have his like uh, he wrote essays like weekly and a dude would just stand there and say, this is the worst, most drivelish thing I've ever read. Like, I can't believe you're at Harvard. Like you're far below normal intelligence. And, like he would just have to keep coming back to take that abuse over and over and over again, because the experiment was seeing how people would take abuse over and over and over again. Yeah, he, he got rocked. The story is crazy because like if you have the feeling that if you dig far enough into any bad thing you'll get to the CIA mm -hmm. this will this like wildly confirms that fear. This dude yeah. is like going to Harvard at 16. He couldn't even agree to participate in this experiment without his mom signing off on it and the guy who's running it basically has all these ties to intelligence and is basically investigating how you break someone for interrogative purposes and is experimenting on a 16-year-old who will later become um, you know, the most infamous, like, mass murderer ever. Like, Harvard and the CIA broke this kid. They really did. And, it's not... That's oh, yeah. And I believe there was uh, drugs involved in the experiment, too. Like, it wasn't even just the self-esteem part, but wasn't there some kind of... Because it, it was a CIA-related experiment to kind of uh, go into how to break people. And I believe they used some mind-altering uh, drugs in the mix, too, in addition. I mean, I think what you described was bad enough even without even without the drugs. But uh, yeah, one of the disappointing things is that even though during the Unabomber's trial, uh, there was an effort to get these sort of documents un unsealed, it was an unsuccessful effort. And we, a lot is unknown about exactly the nature of this experiment. I mean, who the fuck would be surprised if the CIA wound up slipping some drugs into this awful Harvard interrogation tactic experiment? I would not be. <laughs> Yeah, and like whether or not this was like MK Ultra proper, this was definitely part of the same like parcel of CIA funded interrogation studies done at major universities. One thing I've really learned from recent reading, like I'm not a person that's done a lot of reading into the CIA and stuff until very recently, especially gotten into reading about the role of the intelligence community in developing, well, in overthrowing um, governments and that stuff, but also in regards to creating 
the internet and one consistent thing that I've really had a myth or a wrong belief I've been disabused of is the idea that these people are masterminds. Like they just have a lot of power and discretion to do stuff. And anybody with that much power and discretion and resources, you know, to do stuff is going to occasionally, um, strike on some knowledge, you know, you can, you can just hire a lot of experts. You can do some huge experiments. You can do a lot of trial and error and get some successes, you know, but for the most part, it's just the left hand, not knowing what the right hand is doing. And a lot of the times just fucking things up uh, worse or finding out information like, you know, by accident, like the sheer amount of successes, I mean, the, the sheer amount of failures that they've had, or just, um, things that they've, try to do like let's see if this works and just like you know give people a shit ton of lsd and then when they're done they're like well what'd you discover well you know a shit ton of lsd fucks you up like like <laughs> you know it's crazy so uh that's what i think is interesting about conspiracy theories conspiracy theories vastly overestimate the coherence of the giant network and the competence of the giant network to think that there's some masterminds that can do anything under the sun when really it's just a lot of um, bureaucrats with too much power just trying things fucking things up and then trying to figure out who to blame and to take the fall and who um you know to take the credit and basically cut they spend more time covering up their fuck-ups than actually masterminding things expertly yeah, one of the first things we all sat down to talk about when we started podcasting was Pizzagate, uh, and 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 we started talking about conspiracy theories in general, and that that tension between okay, the the magnitude of the effects of 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 whatever thing uh, seems so world altering, uh, so insidious, so nefarious that there has to be the conspiracy theorist re- reasons. There has to be some equally nefarious, equally n- insidious plan on the other end of that, and and you, like you were saying. It's not it's not morally neutral. I mean, it is fucked up to to be a bureaucrat and be like, I wonder what happens to these people with a shitload of drugs or, you know, like I, I let's let's observe what people do when they're totally deprived of sleep. I mean, that is insidious. It just is. It doesn't have in it the des- the the intention of the outcome. It just is people fucking around and seeing what's what. But the conspiracy theorist really wants there to be more sense in the world than there actually is. And that's hard to stomach. Right. Yeah, yeah, because I think it's scarier to people to think that um, even the people in charge don't understand what they're doing. That that it's not like the plot is hidden from us, but that uh, nobody even knows what the plot is anymore. Everyone is just uh, you know making it up as they as they go along. I think that's even uh, scarier to think that the, if the masterminds at least have the plot, this is hope. Hey, if I follow the breadcrumbs enough, I'm gonna know the plot too, or at least somebody's steering the ship. Like you know, you don't know where the ship is going. You're like, if I can just break into that cabin find who the captain is steering this ship i can a um figure out who the captain is and then b ask him where he's taking us and what his plan is and then um c you know then figure out how to steer the ship the right way but then it's like you break into the cabin realize there's just like 20 monkeys just running around flinging shit and fighting for the wheel and you're like holy shit the past 10 years has been this like yeah how do you even make sense of this yeah because like because like the monkeys have been building the ship to suit themselves in their like chaos. And so like even if you were able to get into the cabin, like the levers of power are incomprehensible to you because they've been optimized for idiot monkeys for the past whatever, two hundred years. Well, well I we, would argue those monkeys are brilliant by monkey standards. <laughs> by monkey standards. I get, I get the point. I've read a lot of smart monkeys saying that those monkeys are really smart. 
I mean, but it is true that we tend to believe that we're disturbed by our conspiracy theories, like the ones we might believe. But I think you're exactly right that they're actually ways of comforting ourselves, of imagining that, like, if we could just break through, if we could just expose this next thing, we could find some persuadable elite or some, like, I mean, all the QAnon stuff, the idea that there's, like, some coherence to be found, right? That the world is actually yeah, coherence is a great word. But it, uh, the idea that it actually isn't like that, that it's much scarier, that the sort of the systems that are poisonous to our world are not run by some smoking man or some like, you know, Q or whatever, that in fact, if you could break into the place where, where like everything's in control, there'd be no one there. This is why it's so hard to change. Everyone's to blame, but no one exactly is responsible. There, There's no elite to catch. It's it's terrifying. The the people running the show are as, not only as clueless as you, but are about as unable to change everything in some like dramatic moment as as everyone else is. There's no switch. Yeah, there's only like one guy that if you find him, you can correct 80% of it. Like even like this Jeffrey Epstein thing, it's like it's not like hey, it, it all falls apart when Jeffrey Epstein uh is dead like which is why i think a lot of conspiracy um fiction has you know like this illuminati type of stuff if you get the rothschilds or the council of 10 or something it's not really like that it's just what's but i can i can talk myself mm -hmm. into being a conspiracy theorist again even despite that truth because it seems like actually the circumstances are perfect cover for real conspiracies because in real yeah. life the moral culpability for these insidious plants Epstein is a perfect example or I'm even thinking back in history of like the plot to kill FDR which you read about culpability being distributed actually does obscure uh, not necessarily one dude who's running all the evil but a whole lot of dudes are running all the evil and when that is the case that is sort of a conspiracy I'm positing existing it's just the, what, if you're Conspiracy is as big as the world. It stops sort of being a conspiracy that you can do anything about. That's that's a great point. I think the conspiracies on a small scale happen. Like, for example, killing Jeffrey Epstein, I totally believe there might be a conspiracy for that. But I think what people are actually thinking of are this web of conspiracies, a conspiracy of conspiracies so to speak like, like for example i think the monkeys flinging the shit around and whatever that's not a, a conspiracy but there might be a smaller conspiracy to keep people from finding the monkeys that's the extent to which uh we have conspiracies like just um small little goals of making money or hiding shit or killing someone for example like killing fdr or patrice lumumba i totally believe you know that is a conspiracy now as far as the larger goal of that uh, of this uh giant plot of white supremacy i don't think there's that i just think the government's like hey this might be bad how exactly uh i don't know but there's too many black people uh talking positively just just kill them it's a little conspiracy to kill them and they don't really think past that there might be a conspiracy to the uh, pe people fighting against russia and afghanistan but uh as you can tell by al-qaeda and 9-11 blowing up in our faces uh literally there was no larger conspiracy of what do we do after they beat the communists who knows it'll be fine it's not like 12th dimensional chess and a lot of stuff that would make that would be like unbelievable conspiracies to discover was just out in the open so we like sort of don't treat it like that you know what i mean like if redlining was like a secret that you could discover i feel like it would be like the biggest conspiracy in in history but it just becomes obvious and so we get sort of confused because we want like conspiracy theories want to reveal some secret based on some surprising thing you want to believe that like i don't know tupac is still alive or something as opposed to just really obvious 
like orchestrated injustice that everyone could sort of see for like many decades, that doesn't become as interesting or something. And I think this ties into uh, Tro because uh, one thing that Tro talks about is the ability to, I think, perceive and understand the world that you're in and how television does a lot of things to affect our ability to uh, function as a society. And I think the ways in which television warps reality, very instrumental in making it harder to keep track of information and and scope and scale and all those other things, which um, I think in turn increases the likelihood that um, nobody knows the plot anymore, even the people with power, because he talks about the difference power before of what powerful men were before television and what powerful men are now. But also like the audience gets kind of dumbed down. The average person is lacks the tools now to even understand the world. And I'm going to pass it over to you guys as far as uh, giving some context too. I think before we get into the actual essay, I think that it's funny to say about an essay called the, the context of no context. <laughs> if you can give the context behind the context of no con- of no context. Yeah. Um, like just sort of a, a roundup of, of who this guy was and, and how this essay came about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean- yeah. Yeah, exactly. Who he was and how the essay came about and his life in general. Yeah, yeah Nick, you want to jump in on that? I feel like that's your... Yeah, Nick, I mean, go for it. Yeah, so from what I understand, Tro is like a blue blood. He comes from America's aristocracy, if America has one. Like something decisively broke in him sometime in the 60s, and he became like really, really disillusioned with his position. The one that he inherited as like a New Yorker writer and as a graduate of an Ivy League school. And most of the 70s are spent trying to untease this thing about himself and the stuff he's writing in the 70s eventually culminates in within the context of no context in 1980 and like after that where lots of people think that he had gone insane and like had a manic episode in most of an issue of the new yorker he really does start to lose touch with like at least mainstream New York literary journalism. And like Eric mentioned, he basically becomes indigent and ends up in Alaska and doing basically nothing except drinking and eating Snickers bars. And he eventually dies in Italy, I think in Venice or Milan or something, of a heart attack. And no one finds him for like two weeks because no one knew where he was. And like that's the kind of mind that that's the kind of mind that results when you take on the problem that he takes on, I think. And and not only does he go crazy, but like the thing he's known for, this essay, is the weirdest. I just, it's impossible to explain to somebody how weird this essay is. It is so hard to read and understand. And yet, even though it came out in 1980 and like there was no internet, there was no reality television, like cable news was barely happening then, it really feels like it's onto something and kind of timeless in its weird, like, half insane, like sort of poetic, I don't know, sermon quality that it has. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems like, like a lot of prophets, um, he couldn't, the, the message that he had for us was not one that he could just sort of like give to us straight. And I don't, I mean, I don't know exactly what caused this break that really does seem to have happened that Nick was just talking about, but, um, I think the writer of Within the Context of No Context clearly is being like, uh, as Nick says at one point in our discussion about it, schizophrenicized by the media landscape, by television and what it is doing. And he feels, or perhaps rightly so, the author of that book feels like how we're all being torn apart like this. And the, and the tearing apart of us is, yeah, 
clearly emblemized in the incredibly strange, poetic, nonlinear way in which he chose to present both that essay and the book. And and um and yeah, it's it's like baffling and alienating, but that's uh, I can't help but think part of the point. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it's the way it is written is as important as the content, if not more so, because the thing he's trying to illustrate almost can't be talked about. And I remember when we talked about the book, like, uh, sorry, if I didn't, if I just stepped on you, Trevor, I was just going to say in response to that, like that, that very point became a real sticking point for me in trying to understand the book. <laughs> like, why, why can't we just talk about this thing if it's so important? Like, why can't, why can't this thing be reformed in, in a more linear way? Um, and I remember sort of settling on an interpretation that this is kind of like poetry about a problem. And sometimes obviously a problem is so deep and and deep-seated that that maybe the poetry of it can sort of get at a truth that a linear narrative can't. Obviously, it would be very easy to dismiss this as just some sort of like technophobic aging guy if it were conventional. And it, we could just say like TV is not for him. Uh, so maybe that's one of the reasons why is he the struggle that we feel with it is something that he was trying to build in as, as a as a mechanism of relevance or something. I but I wonder your, your guys' thoughts. Well, and also the problem he's trying to identify like hides itself as part of its activity of being the problem. And so like t the, the grid of TV is so totalizing that not only do people believe what the TV tells them, but a criticism of a world like outside of that grid is almost incomprehensible to someone who doesn't think there's a grid outside of it. One thing I was thinking when I uh, read this, well, uh, in full disclosure, I read this the first time about 10 years ago, and I honestly didn't like it because I didn't understand it. So I just thought, oh, this is a pretentious um, piece of crap. Uh, I, don't, I don't like this thing. Or it, it's okay, but I think the guy is just... Um, Piece of crap was too much. I didn't think. I didn't think that. I should take that back. But <laughs> I, I, get I, it, I did feel very disappointed in that. I thought this is not really about anything. It's kind of uh, empty. When I revisited it, when I tried it again uh, recently, I was like, "Wow, what was I talking about?" But I think it was too far ahead. I think one of two things hap happened. I think it was too advanced. You know, as far I think I was too like in the matrix to um, kind of kind of see it to use like, a tired uh, metaphor. And I think the it's become so apparent or more pronounced like how artificial our world is that my mind was, you know, I think I read more about a lot of the concepts because I've read things like what I told you, that book um, by Daniel Borstein, The Image. That one is covers a lot of the same stuff, but in a way more straightforward way. Like the guy just spills everything out in a straightforward way. Um, so I think, A, that helped. But I think, B, I think the world Tro is predicting has become so apparent and so advanced like it's um way easier to see because at this point it's not even being prescient when you read it today so much as just describing like in 1980 i think this must have been such a harder world to um see and you know what it reminded me of when i when i read it is it reminded me of uh, Zen Cohen. Because if you're a reader of Zen Cohen, uh, or like an Aesop's fable, where part of it is um, to not tell you what it's about, but to like the work somehow of figuring out what it's about. This this is how somebody described uh, a Zen Cohen um, to me. And the purpose of a Zen Cohen when I used to be into Buddhism was uh, that if you if a caterpillar is trying to come out of the cocoon, if a caterpillar is trying to come out of the cocoon and you think you're helping the caterpillar by cutting open the cocoon or you try to help it, the caterpillar is going to come out like deformed or half 
half caterpillar, half um, butterfly. I forget what the intermediate stage is. And not only that, it will be too weak to um, live or fly or do anything. It'll just fall out of the cocoon and die. And the reason for that is the actual work that the caterpillar does to break out of the cocoon actually builds up the caterpillar's um, muscles and its uh, strength. And I think also like helps nourish the caterpillar so that the struggle to get out actually strengthens um, the caterpillar and you cannot assist the caterpillar in it. There's there's no way to help the caterpillar outside of letting it grapple with getting out. The grappling uh, strengthens it. And he said, and the person told me that's the purpose of a Zen Cohen. Uh, it, the teacher can just tell you the stuff, but um, the knowledge will be weaker if it's just told to you than if you... Um, then if you're just given a cocoon to break out of and you have to reason your way out of the cocoon and that's what the the cohen is trying trying to do is to kind of wrap you in a, a riddle that's kind of like a cocoon and then breaking through the cocoon of the riddle by um, trying to make sense of it gives you gives the knowledge a bigger strength and i feel like that's what he's trying to do here he's putting cryptic lines and painting a picture and trying to put you in a position of he doesn't want to help you through it because i think he's gonna he thinks he's gonna be doing you a disservice and the disservice that he would be doing is what tv does where he just spoon feeds you everything mm-hmm. yeah he, he's exactly. not an authoritarian and so the question of how do you educate somebody is a real question to him because it can't just be i know the answer like daniel borston and here's the book where i describe the answer like that presupposes a kind of person who's able to absorb information in like the pre-digested way but that ain't america and it hasn't been ever since tv that like the thing a teacher has to do to teach people about the problems of america is a lot more complicated and requires a lot more what i would call wisdom than simply qualification you know and there there's, there's a, a contradiction sorry go on no, no, I, uh, you sure? No, go ahead. I was going to say, like, uh, adding to the relevance of, of that analogy to a Zen Cohen. I mean, this is this is a book that has a contradiction in its title within the context of no context. And and the the subject matter I take, as he describes it, to be in, in, in some way enforcing this incredible contradiction, which is really hard to articulate and was, for me as a reader of this book, really hard to understand. And I almost feel like it's the kind of thing I have to get I have to I have to sort of let hit me more than um like unravel uh it's it's not a not to be untangled this is the whole problem and a lot of you know one of the we should say i suppose one of the features of the weirdness of this book is that like on any given page there could be like seven different paragraphs each with its their own heading and sometimes it's just what they're one sentence long i mean a lot of the headings that appear are things like the problem or problems like he keeps sort of trying to circle around this big problem which has to do with scale and these two grids the grid of of everyone and the grid of one and and the way in which television has interrupted what would be the natural relationships between these two things. And to read this book that feels like um, it does not spell out that interruption. It it in a certain way iterates that interruption. We 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 get to feel it in this in this in this way. I mean, I also want to just like jump in and say like, there's not only is it true that he wants the caterpillar to be strong enough, you know what I'm saying, before they get to the insights he's offering. I also think there's like a kind of respect being offered by being challenging because so much of his complaint about television, television sort of stands in for just the trends of our culture where we're sort of headed, is that a kind of like, it's no longer an exchange between equals. We're getting our information from people who believe that they are cunning and that we are infantile, that we we have a short attention span, that like, we're not going to vote for the person with the best policies. We're going to vote for who we want to have a beer with. 
and these and the the people we might believe they're no gatekeepers but whether it's algorithms or sort of clever website managers they're people who are going to treat us like children and give us easy answers so when he's going to critique that tendency in the culture it needs to be hard he needs to treat us like we get it as well as he does or something does that make any sense yeah, because part of the people, part of the reason he's criticizing media is that media presupposes this like whole world that has crisp borders and nothing outside of it. And that just isn't the world that people live in. There's an advantage to the person reading it now and a disadvantage to the person reading it now. And I think there's an advantage to the person reading it when it first came out and a disadvantage to the person reading it when it first came out. And what I think that is, is that I think in 1980, um, the average person's brain wasn't as fried yet by MTV, music video, text messages, Twitter, um, the internet, and all this micro entertainment that they had the attention span to sit through it. I think that would be the advantage that a um, reader back then had. But the disadvantage would be we weren't far along in that um, world to really understand exactly how horrible the existence he was talking about was. Whereas I think today we have a totally terrible attention span. Like I get really surprised when people, you know, tell me stuff like, um, oh, this YouTube video took too long to get the point, get to the point. But it was like <laughs> four minutes. It's like, oh my God, you can't sit through four minutes. Just double the speed if you have to, you know? And then like they, they can't, or, or there's a there's a progress bar. Just move the progress bar. Like, you, you know, it, it blows my mind. So I think, I think people don't have the two to sit through this, but they do have enough of this world he's talking about being exaggerated to the most cartoonish, caricatured extremes that um, it almost makes up for the lack of patience they have, because at least, at least I can recognize what he's talking about, even if to me, it's taking too long to get to it, or it's too... Right. Um, <laughs> convoluted for me it's so in my face that i can still somewhat um understand it and i think the reason why i couldn't get it when i first read it was because i was in the in between stage of you know the worst of both worlds i didn't really have the attention span at the time you know and but the world wasn't in my face enough to, you know, intuitively understand what he was getting at either. Right. And and I think maybe one of the advantages of, of a person who was reading it back then might be, I mean, that th there was this moment, which like it, it does seem like came before all of us, where all of a sudden TV was there and it threatened to be the ubiquitous thing that it, of course, became. And uh, we saw the danger in people sitting down and looking at this media landscape, this media universe, and saying to themselves in some way, that's the world, or that's me, or that's other people uh, at this this media thing. And then like smash cut to uh, the videos on Pornhub have <laughs> like section markers for what kind of sex it is so that you don't have to watch the the whole thing. Like this is, this is the same world <laughs> separated by not that much time actually. And I do feel like I'm just like like even even just flipping through the book again before we talked the the idea that there is this there is art requires a context he says at one point the so how do the manipulations of television deal with the fact that art re requires a context well it like gives you all kinds of falsehoods and fake shit and emptinesses and ad hoc contexts just that exists for a second and tells you that this is the enduring context of whatever the thing that uh, is that you're watching and that mismatch is so fun fundamentally dangerous to development and how you see not just media, of course, but you and the world that he really, he, I, I really think he has to display it a little.
little bit in order to get it across to me. Because I'm the same person who struggles with this book and then, yeah, watches a YouTube video and is like, hey, speed it up fucking four minutes, Charlie. <laughs> it's definitely the kind of problem that you really can't fix for another person. A, li a little bit like addiction. You know, like you can say someone's addicted to something, but fixing it in them, like that's not anything another person can do for another person. And so approaching the problem is something that like challenges you to figure out what the form is about, like even why the paragraphs are like this. It pushes the burden back where it belongs, which is onto you who have been, you know, tacitly acculturated to a television grid and a television culture and a television understanding of like truth and like where better than your own confusion to start, you know? What's crazy about a lot of this stuff is as bad as television is compared to the internet, I mean, I feel like the internet is all this stuff on on steroids. It's it's nuts. And and um that's an important way to put it though. Mm -hmm. It's all this stuff on steroids as opposed to a whole new thing, right? Definitely. Yeah, I I would think so, uh, for sure. And it probably I think I think it's a quantitative difference. The one qualitative difference is is that it becomes way more participatory. So what happens is instead of a handful of people in charge of this thing that we call television and creating this thing that has this horrible effects and the audience just is kind of passively receiving it. It now all of us are in on the project. All of us are. Um, it, it's a, it's like a television that all of us are simultaneously consuming and. Um, creating we're all tweeting about it i mean the articles now there are articles that are basically compilations of tweets there are tv stories about tweets like you know twitter reacts to this thing and the tv show will put tweets on the screen with a newscaster in front of them they make movies based on twitter threads or <laughs> or movies with and that's a literal thing there's a movie coming out called zola about a viral Twitter thread. It's 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 crazy. Are you fucking serious? I have not know that. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if you remember like was it? I forgot what the story was called, but it was a story about it was a Twitter thread about like someone who went on an adventure with her stripper friend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude, I remember that thread. That's a great thread. Yeah, it was a great thread. Uh, they made a whole movie about it, and it debuted at Sundance uh, b before the quarantine. So they're making <laughs> threads on movies. They're making a remake of She's All That, which is a, a movie that so doesn't need a remake, but they're making it with TikTok influencers. The whole cast is TikTok influencers. So yeah, so I would say that's a qualitative yeah. difference. Like, yeah. like, like the internet is quantitatively like way worse. Like it's on steroids, but it also gives everyone a chance to contribute to the project, not just be the receiver of the um, bad. We're all we're all accomplices now. I, totally. I also think this is an important thing to note about like this essay within the context of no context. Like this is kind of written by an old, rich, privileged white dude who's like lamenting in some ways the like passing of an old guard elitism that like none of us really want back. It's not like we all wish it was 1950. So like one of the ironies here is that his critique is good, but it's not like we want it to go back the old way. We just need to Do you to think listen. he does? Because I couldn't figure that out either. I, I don't think he knows. I, I actually so I, I, I read someone online today when I was like looking around where someone said this that this essay is a cost-benefit analysis with none of the benefits included. You know? Which I actually think is true. It's like a very gr it's, it is a sort of like lament but the value isn't in remembering like oh wasn't it great when like the, the really smartest of the East Coast elites 
got to like pick everything. I, I would never want to go back to that. But the warning about things like, I don't know if we've spelled out exactly like what he's telling us about television is dangerous, but like when he brings up sort of the pseudo intimacy of television that we have gotten better and better at providing sort of instant context and like warmth. What I was thinking looking at it today, getting ready to talk to you was I was like, this is a fucking con man's world. We all are lonely, isolated, and we're more and more used to a sort of Pepsi logic where someone shows up and smiles at us and it feels real. And like, that's the thing we need to be aware of. It's not like we need to go back to like the Harvard Lampoon class of 62. And he is explicitly scared of that. Like he he at one point brings up an example of a a TV program about a person fleeing the city and and going to install a wood stove in an old house, uh, which is the kind of thing that most people, he says, would view as healthy. And then another example of teens in a stage show who are like self-mutilating on stage uh, and like burning a car on stage, which is what most people would view as unhealthy. But obviously he has the reverse view and he wants to... to, to sort of rep the reverse view because I do think even beyond the kind of flattening effect that you were describing earlier, Trevor, and I, that I do think that Adam is gl- glimpsing at too, there's this kind of total rounding of all the edges. If everyone has to fit into this context of no context on TV, then yeah, the turn it all the way up to 11. There, are, There's no such thing as edgy stage shows anymore or they're viewed as somehow not a part of the real world or as unhealthy and, and there's no one there to comment and criticize because everyone is a part of it. Your HR person, the the ads, Amazon on Twitter is a part of this. Your mom is a part of this on Facebook. She's adopting the same flattened, rounded, smarm. Like there's no escape. And that, that claustrophobia is in part what he's reacting to. I agree without exactly having a plan for what to do. Yeah, yeah. Everybody is an audience and a broadcaster. Everybody is a, a consumer and a platform or a seller. Like, like it's, uh, I think that is the scariest thing is that this has become, everyone's become a micro version of um, what Tro was describing television as, as in all these influencers, all these TikTok channels. I mean, everyone is a programmer now. Everybody's programming. Like, you know, I program my podcast. I had to program my YouTube. I mean, I'm part of it too. It's it's kind we're of weird than that. Yeah, we all are. But being that this is the world we live in, even the choices to get out of it become to try to take this world because it's the only uh, world that exists now and hope that you can use the problem for, for good. You know, the, the infamous, uh, I'm going to F it up from the inside uh, type of attitude. Like yeah, ride even, the evil horse to a good place kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I have more female guards. Exactly. Even to figure out a solution, you can't even imagine a way to the solution that doesn't involve utilizing the so-called problem which i think is a fascinating um conundrum when i read when i read tro yeah i was gonna say i was gonna let you guys um respond to what i just said if you had any response to it and then from there i think it'd probably be a good time to actually get into the content of within the context of no context because right. i think we've been actually discussing the context of the essay without actually telling people the content of it. So if if you have anything you want to add to what I just said, um, by all means do it. And then we can jump into actually describing what the actual essay is about. I think the only thing I would add is that Tro feels like there's a faculty that people are lacking, which is something like an ability to see yourself as not part of a grid and to see yourself as 
uh, a thing that like all these grids are trying to get at, which is you know like kind of a wisdom, kind of a self awareness, kind of like a not being afraid of being the subject of advertisers' focus. But like that is so far away from a skill he can like concretize and say you do this, this, and this, and then you'll be cured. That like Eric said, really all he can do is lament, you know, and like leave it up to individuals to see how they could possibly get out of this. And it seems fair to say that he not only doesn't have the answers, he's very honest about it. Like, um, he is nostalgic for the world that he lost, the world with elites and gatekeepers and whatever. But he also, in his nostalgia, seems to realize that there was a problem with that world. Like, he never seems to prescribe um, just, hey, um, I'm a curmudgeon, um, get off my lawn, let's go back to the way things were. He's like, um, the world that we were from was flawed and maybe it needed to be changed, but this is so much worse. And we've actually, we may have lost more than we gained by um, getting rid of the things that 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 we did. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, earlier we talked about conspiracy theories a little bit and like, and, and then you brought up uh, the extrapolation of all this stuff intro to, to influencers, Instagram influencers. Uh, and I want to say, like, no one gave all these people on Instagram a manual, and yet it appears they all have the style guide. <laughs> you know, like somehow the 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 rules got codified just through the thing never being challenged. And I would say, I don't know how it feels to y'all, but like, I would say we're almost right past the point. Like, pe people give like. Like respectable people tell you how to like brand up your Instagram. Like if you ever look at like the maybe Trevor, you've looked at this, like the like starting a podcast literature online, that body of work is all fucking terrifying. <laughs> the things they tell you to do, you know, and like and so that's like acceptable. And it's almost to the point where no one is going to question that at all. It's just going to be that is the context of no context uh, Instagram right. edition, you know, but if, but if, it does. Yeah. Oh, no, no, go on. I didn't know. I thought you were still. I, I, I was just going to say one last little stinger, which is that. Like, I think we're almost like it's about to be unquestionable. It's about to be as built into American life as television now is. But I, I don't know if we're there yet. It feels it still feels like we have a chance. Well, what, one way it's definitely already built in is like the thing that an Instagram influencer seems to be born knowing, like how to optimize or whatever. Like you ask an average person, you know, in Tennessee or Nevada or somebody who's not a political junkie about who they like, and they'll give you a pollster's answer. They'll say that, well, you know, Hillary Clinton. Clinton just didn't have it where it counted with like the 60s and no college degree like they'll t give you a pollster answer and that's a person who doesn't have political opinions anymore they only have an idea of what will play and like that's basically how we got Donald Trump yeah this this uh opinion about other people's opinions as opinions that you have um one one thing that I find uh pretty interesting about all this is I read a book back in the day very unironically um, I think I think the fact that I read this book very unironically and earnestly, it, it was around the same time that I read The Context of No Context, which I think uh, shows how unprepared my mind was for uh, the essay, was uh, The Four-Hour Workweek. And I remember reading The Four-Hour Workweek and liking Tim Ferriss. And at some point, I just realized this is too ridiculous. I got to the point of the four-hour body. You turned on him. And I'm like, this is the most joyless way to live. And right. this kind of thing of focus group testing and optimizing and hacking your whole life you can't even enjoy 
process of anything because it's so metrics and and outcome driven. But uh, recently, I wanted to have a guest on the show and just, you know, talk about this whole personal branding entrepreneur literature. And I said, oh, let me go back to the great granddaddy of it all. And I went back to the Tim Ferriss four hour work week. I got a a bootleg of it because I threw out my old copy. (laughs) And when I look at it now, I was like, oh, my God, this guy predicted everything. He might even have uh, created it. It's all this stuff about how to fake an identity. So it's all about, hey, take take three courses in this thing. And then now you can call yourself an expert. Use the contacts you make from the people in those courses to then do a seminar, rent a room, uh, present yourself as an expert in the thing, take everyone's card, now do this. And I was like, holy shit, this is... This is a step-by-step crazy, crazy, crazy thing. And and uh, I think that book is very underrated for, like, if you go on to, like, on, on Clubhouse, they have a bunch of these people, these influencers or people who tell you how to get, um, you know, influence. No one says what to get influenced for. Like, no one says, hey, what's your business or anything? They just, they just know you want to get people to follow you. And this is this is how to do it. That was something that was very interesting about this entrepreneurship of Tim Ferriss is that it almost didn't matter what you wanted to be an entrepreneur about because the real point was the clout. Trevor, I like so much that you brought this up. I just have to, sorry, Nick, I have to just jump in because I'm so excited about this. Uh, like I've had this moment where I'm talking to somebody and I think I'm having like a real conversation with them. And then they bring up something like uh, Ferris's four-hour work week. And I'm like, oh, no, I wasn't talking about like self-hacking. This is such a bummer for me because I, I think you're exactly right. Like the, it isn't about business. It's it's a very weird way of seeing yourself. It's a kind of like, I don't know, there's a con man's logic at work. Yes. Not that, that's not a big criticism of like Ferris exactly. I actually think he's tricked himself first. I actually believe yeah. he's totally sincere. But but the, the capitalism, the gods of capitalism have just hit lightning bolts down onto Ferris and then he is spreading a kind of trick that he used to fool himself. But it's like, you're not talking about a four-hour work week. Like, none of this is real. This is all, you notice that the business isn't included in your business plan. This is a kind of like self self-hypnosis to make yourself not sad about how shitty everything is right like this and it worked for him and on, and on top mm-hmm, and, and, and on top of that it's not really four hours it's four hours uh of doing conventional office work so <laughs> it says so you're basically doing four hours of maybe um sitting at a desk and doing the normal stuff that you know, an entrepreneur or business person does, but you're actually and selling and shilling and and looking for angles and and working that con. But eighty, a hundred hours a week, like like the amount of. T- actual uh scamming lightweight scamming because nothing is an outright lie it's all bullshitting the amount of bullshitting you have to do is actually way more work than just doing 40 hours in, in an office right except all that, that hacking all that of, metric measuring right but instead of admitting that you're unhappy in your fucking office job and starting to wonder about what kind of changes might make you happier you think you're like low-key preparing your four-hour work week you fool yeah, yourself yeah the amount of time you're doing to prepare that four-hour work week is uh <laughs> yeah. is just self-deluding all that's right Non, it's non-stop. hundred percent. I mean, the, the really depressing thing about Tim Ferriss and like, you know, the whole thing that Trevor's talking about is that in one sense, the problem is super obvious, right? Like people just are so worried about having to stay alive that they think that, oh, well, Tim Ferriss has like the rule book now, and this is what you have to do to stay alive in the society we have. And like everyone leaps over the implied like 
condition, which is, do we really want to live this way? And almost no one has it in them anymore to say, I don't want to live this way. This is fucked. Why am I doing this? You know? And that leads, I think, to a great point about uh, the content of this essay. The essay opens up with this paragraph that I think totally um, uh, ties into that. It goes, wonder was the grace of the country. Any action could be justified by that. The wonder it was rooted in. Period followed period. And finally, the wonder was that things could be built so big. Bridges, skyscrapers, fortunes, all having a life first in the marketplace, still drew on the force of wonder. But then a moment's quiet. What was it now that was built so big? Only the marketplace itself. Could there be wonder in that? Uh, the size of the con. And, and basically the idea that the only thing that's built um, big anymore. I mean, that's what that's what I, I took from it. Um, but uh, that the only thing that uh, we can still be wowed by the size of is the marketplace uh, not not the buildings, not anything physical, not anything natural. The only size that can still continue to wow us in the present is how big the marketplace is. And because the internet wasn't out yet, he didn't say this, but I would say with the dawn of the internet, the size of the network, the size of the you know, Twitter has is a is a giant chat room with basically maybe um half a billion people or whatever it is facebook is um a marketplace a digital marketplace with um it's not a community none of these are communities these people try to lie to us and tell us that the selling is a community but facebook is just a giant marketplace it's just an ad delivery system uh, with, with probably over a billion people and i think uh tro was really pressured in that that the only big thing that can wow us anymore or, or still a sense of wonder is the size of the marketplace um but i think he probably uh not for any fault of himself, but just not being there for social media, didn't realize that the marketplace would be given to us under the guise of uh, community. Or maybe he did. Isn't there a section that's called pseudo community or am I misremembering? Yeah, no. And even... even oh, pseudo just, intimacy. Okay, I'm wrong. He did predict it. <laughs> well, and even just this in this thing that you read, like, yes, it's true. Like Facebook is primarily the greatest advertising engine ever built, uh, sort of disguised to get you to participate in it. I think you can make the same argument or a similar argument about Twitter. But, you know, he talks a lot, especially in this early part about de demographics and scale. Um, and that the, I think at one point he says, like, uh, the history of no history or, or the history became the history of demographics is what he says on the second page, uh, which is uh, the history of no history. The way that Twitter and Instagram and social media services are stat driven and outward facing with their stats right like you're i'm talking about your followers and your likes and your uh like that that little quantification ribbon that hovers under your name and serves as the primary avenue of of pseudo legitimacy for all of your onlookers and the way that people like Tim Ferriss want you to build up those numbers those demographics those those metrics as such right it doesn't and never exactly question the project like, yeah. yeah that's i to me that's uh, that's the extension of what Tro is talking about into our social media driven internet. It's television logic that we all yes, look at that our we all have. Account. We are all sort of weird television producers of our own bullshit. Like, yeah, yes. if, if we're honest with personal, ourselves. How about the term personal brand? Right? It's yeah, crazy. I mean, that, that, that's the most like, prescient thing about Tro to me is that when he accuses people of becoming television producers, it doesn't make any sense until you let the system like develop to the point it is now when we literally all have to curate our own personal brands for anyone to take us seriously. And haven't you had the experience of like tweeting or posting something you didn't even really like and then you watched <laughs> it get a response and you had this weird ambivalent moment with yourself where you're like, I don't even like this, but 
look at the response it's getting as if you were like like your own producer looking at ratings but you don't yeah. like the show like that I feel experience. bad for my life but this is amazing content and you look at other people's numbers and you feel all kinds of emotions about them. You're like, this that is unjust. you don't unjust. have any outlet to articulate to. And Why? then you're going to build that into your self-conception and your future behavior in very subtle and insidious ways. All right, y'all. So that is the end of part one. Go to, again, patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good. <laughs>